This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. We're going to turn our attention now to the preaching of God's Word. And so if you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. If you do not have a Bible with you, we have someone in the back who would love to give one to you. You can shoot your hand up in the air and we'd be happy to get a Bible into your hand. Uh, you're going to want to find your way to the book of Judges, which is about seven books into the Bible. We've been in a series in this book called Judges. Uh, if you're new with us, this book really has one central theme that keeps repeating itself. The book of Judges is about how the people of God are stuck. They're stuck in a cycle that they just can't seem to break out of. The cycle is that they start worshiping false gods. They start worshiping idols, things that are not the one true God. They get in trouble as a result. They cry out to the one true God for help. He raises up a judge, which is another word for a rescuer or a savior. He raises up a judge to save them. They get saved and do fine for a while. And then they turn to false idols and the cycle repeats. And so what we're also going to continue to see in this book is not only does the cycle repeat, but also each story gets a little bit worse than the one before. Uh, we met the last judge, Japheth, and he was not so great a judge, uh, taking even the life of his own daughter. We're about to meet the last judge, a man named Samson, and I just want to warn you, he's an absolute mess. Um, and so we see this, this book, it's not only repeating cycles, but it's really like a downward spiral where each story gets worse than the one that was previously before it. And so why on earth is a book like this in the Bible? And why on earth would we as a church take time to read it? Well, it's because I think this book is just another illustration of our human condition. It's like the people of Israel, we can be people who can get stuck. We can be people who have repeated cycles of sin in our lives. But we have good news. God has sent a judge. He has sent a savior, one far better than any of these judges because this judge is incorruptible. This judge, his name is Jesus. And he is not only someone who came and saved for a moment, he's the savior for all time because he lives for all time. He is the eternal God. And so through following Jesus, we can truly experience real transformation in our lives as Jesus is the cycle breaker who can bring the true change that we so desperately want. As we come to Judges chapter 13, this is a birth story. It's a birth story. It's the birth story of this last judge we're going to meet, Samson. Um, Samson's story we're going to see as we get through verses uh, next, next week, we're going to meet chapters 14, 15, and the week after that, chapter 16, all about Samson. Again, he's an absolute mess. But before we get into Samson's mess, his birth story is actually really sweet. Um, it's a really sweet moment where God meets people in a really profound way. Way And it really highlights to us the sweetness and beauty of God's grace. That's what this chapter is really all about. This chapter is about the amazing grace of God. And in our human experience, where we can so often be ridden with guilt and shame, where we can so often be performance-oriented and perfection-driven, where we can be trapped in living in discouragement because we feel like we just never measure up. 
we need this beauty of grace highlighted to our hearts again and again. Now, this word grace is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter, but I do hope by the end of our time together, we'll see how it really is the central theme. I've entitled this morning's sermon, How Amazing is Grace? How amazing is grace? Let's turn our attention to God's word. I'm going to read chapter 13 in its entirety, and then we will pray for God's blessing. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistine for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me. And his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah. The angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I command her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was with the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with grain offering and offered it to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward the heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or showed us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Medethan, between Zorah and Ashtael. Let's bow our heads and pray that God would bless the preaching of his word. I want to encourage you just to have a time of prayer right now between you and God.
asking him to speak to you through what you're about to hear. Now would you please pray also for me, that I be strengthened by the Spirit to speak in a way that is helpful to you about this text. God, as we come before your word, I pray that you would humble us. That as we read this story, we would see this is more than a story. This is more than just a historical moment. These are events inspired by you, put into your word, preserved throughout time, because you want to speak to us through Judges 13 today. And it is a humbling thing to be addressed by the Holy God. And so, Lord, we pray that you would humble us and give us, Lord God, eyes to see today what you want to show us, hearts to receive what you want to give us. And Lord God, in all things, that you be glorified through us. Please, Lord God, meet us in this moment, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. How amazing is grace? How amazing is grace? As we work our way through this text, what I believe God wants to see is that grace really is amazing. Grace really is amazing because in verses 1 through 5, we see that grace redeems more than we deserve. Grace really is amazing because as we then go on to see in verses 6 through 7, grace gives more than we can ask. Grace is really amazing because then as we will go on to see in verses 8 through 14, Grace creates more than we can do. And finally, grace really is amazing because as we'll see in verses 15 through 25, grace costs more than we can give. Let's consider each of these sections together. First, grace really is amazing because grace redeems more than we deserve. Verse 1 starts by saying that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. We know from the context of the rest of this book that that's a shorthand way of saying that they are once again going after and worshiping other gods. It is so easy to allow God to be pushed to the side of our lives and for us to put other things in our in his place. And we might not say that we're doing that. We might not even consciously think that we're doing that. I'm not sure if these people knew that they weren't worshiping God and God alone. Maybe they thought just a little idolatry would be helpful, but it wasn't that they were necessarily turning their back on God. And that can be true for us. We can think that we are still living and worshiping for God, and yet idols have actually creeped into our lives. Because the reality is, whatever we say with our lips, it's what controls our decisions. It's what drives our choices that show what we really worship. And how easy it is to let things other than God be what control what we do and drive and form how we live. But that's idolatry. That's idolatry. We're to be controlled by one thing and one thing only, and that is God as He's expressed Himself through His Word. And yet so often we can have other agendas that come into our lives and lead us down different paths. That's idolatry. But idolatry always leads to slavery. 
these Israelites worshipped the gods of the Philistines, and so they became enslaved to the Philistines. And for us, while we're not worshipping necessarily Philistines, actually they died out as a people group, so you can't worship them even if you wanted to, um, we can worship other things. And what we worship, if it's not the Lord, what we worship will enslave us. And so if you worship other people's approval, if that's your idol, if that's what controls your decisions, then you'll be a slave to doing whatever you can do to get other people to like you. If you worship your career, then you'll be a slave to just always trying to take the next step. If you worship money, then you'll be a slave to doing whatever you can to get more money. That'll be what controls you. You see, what we worship is what controls us. And being controlled by anything other than God will lead to slavery. Because nothing else can give us the joy and peace that only He can. As the early church father Augustine so aptly said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they learn to find the rest in Thee. See, we'll always be searching for more. We'll always be looking for the next thing. We'll always be living in slavery if God is not the central point of our lives. And so I'm not sure what idols can be a temptation for you. I can be often tempted with an idol of success. That can be what drives me sometimes. I want to be seen as successful. When I was in sales, which was a previous job I had, I think it was a previous life sometimes. When I was in sales, I, I, I so worshipped the God of success, it so drove me that I became so stressed out by working so many hours, my Crohn's disease flared up so bad, I needed to have extensive surgery. But here is the extent of my slavery. When I'm in the pre-op room, getting ready and prepped for surgery, they had not yet taken my cell phone, and a prospective client called. And I knew I should not pick up the phone because I'm literally about to have surgery because of how much I was working. And yet, I was so enslaved to the idolatry of success, I knew that if I didn't take the call, someone else would get the sale. And so with an IV in one arm and my cell phone in another arm, I took the call and closed the deal. Friends, that is idolatry that has resulted in slavery. And while I'm grateful, while God has certainly worked in my life, and I'm not the same man as I was back then, let's be very clear, our idols are always somewhat with us. They're always waiting to kind of get back into the central place of our life. Sin is like riding a bike. Just because you're not currently doing it doesn't mean you've forgotten how to do it. It's always waiting there, and you're always ready to jump back on it. And so in a few weeks, I'm going to be away at my seminary, and here's what I'm aware of. I'm very aware that as soon as I get off the train in Richmond, that there's an idol waiting for me of wanting to be seen as successful by all the other pastors that I'll be hanging out with for that week. I'm going to want to look good. I know that idol's waiting for me there. And yet I know that if I go down that path and care about their approval, I know if I just want to come off as successful, the reality is no amount of praise and no amount of success will actually make me feel successful. Like I've drunken from that well, and I know it doesn't actually satisfy. And so I know that if that's what I'm chasing, then I'll always be chasing and never achieving. And so there's no joy, there's no rest in that, there's no freedom. Friends, it's slavery. It's slavery. What can you be tempted to be enslaved to? These people were chasing things other than God. And so they were living in slavery. And quite frankly, God owed them nothing except to leave them there. Like the story could have been over in verse 1. People chased after other gods, and God said, finally, 
okay, fine. Have it your way. Game over. God owes these people who have rejected him nothing. He owes them nothing. He owes us nothing. But their story and our story does not end with just getting what we deserve. In verses 2 through 5, this angel of the Lord comes to the woman and promises that she will give birth to a Savior who will redeem these people from their slavery. Now we've seen already in this book how the angel of the Lord is another way of saying God Himself. And we see that in this chapter. Because down in verse 18, how did this being identify Himself? He said, my name is too wonderful. If you're familiar with the Bible, what should begin to come to your mind is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We often read this around Christmas time. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Friends, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And these people realize that they are talking to God when they come down in verse 22 and the father in Manoah explicitly says, we're going to die because we have seen the Lord. Right? They realize that the angel of the Lord is not just an angel. This is actually God himself. And so when we see this angel of the Lord coming, what we need to understand, friends, this, this is God coming. This is God coming. This is the, the God of the universe, the one who spoke and so it was, the high and holy one, the one who was majestic and, and massive, the one that these people had rejected. This is the one who owes us nothing but justice for sinful rebellion. And yet this is the one who comes and he gives these people a redemption they didn't deserve. Friends, this is grace. This is grace. Grace is God's initiative to be good to those who deserve nothing good from him. Grace is more than just getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting the opposite of what we do deserve. Grace is God's goodness to those who only deserve God's judgment. And this idea of being undeserving is not meant to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's actually meant to make us feel very secure in God's love. Because if grace is not something that I deserve, but I've still been given it. If grace is not something that I've merited, but I've still been shown it. If grace is not given because of me, then it cannot be lost because of me. How often we try to find security in ourselves. How often we feel like we need to engage in some kind of positive self-affirmation because that's what our culture tells us that we need. Our culture tells us that we need to wake up and say five positive things about ourselves. We need to wake up and we need to just tell ourselves how great we are. And listen, go to any bookstore and there's a whole self-help section that would love to sell you a book about how to feel better about yourself. But you know why these books keep selling? Because you read one, you get to the end of it, you ain't going to feel better about yourself. And so here's the next book and the next book and the next book. Because, friends, here's the reality. We can say whatever positive things we want to say about ourselves. I'm not saying those things are not necessarily true. But here's the reality. We look in the mirror and we know ourselves too well to know that those positive things, they're only things that are true. We know that there are also faults and flaws. We know there are also regrets. We know there are also things that we can carry heavy upon our hearts. 
And so we can look in the mirror and say whatever we want to say, but those sayings will ring hollow because we know ourselves just too well. And so we stay shackled and shamed. But here's what grace tells us. Grace tells us, put the mirror down. Grace tells us, put the mirror down. Grace is not about you. Grace is about him. God chose to rescue these people, not because they were deserving, but because he is loving. And friends, what a foreshadowing this is of the gracious love of God shown to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, here is what that means for you. As Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 5, here's what that means. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, this is grace. This is God's goodness to those who deserve nothing good from him. This is Jesus coming and taking the judgment of death that we deserve so that we can live in the salvation that he has earned. This is the grace of God. And so I don't know what shame you can carry. I don't know what guilt can weigh heavy on your soul. I don't know what failures just can repeat in your mind. I'm not sure what those things might be, but I am sure that for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, I am sure, as Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 8, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. And guess what, friends? That includes our sin because our sin exists in creation. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, we are loved, we are forgiven, we are blessed, not because of what we have done, but because of who Jesus is. It is because he is the righteous for the unrighteous. He is the beauty for the broken. He is the redemption for those who have regrets. He's the savior of sinners, friends. He is the grace of God. So the reality of us being undeserving of God's love should not make us for one moment doubt the truth that God does love us. Because his love for us does not have anything to do with us. It's all about him. What he has chosen to show us by grace. Friends, there is grace to be found in knowing that it is so amazing. It redeems more than we deserve. Grace redeems more than we deserve. Second, grace really is amazing because grace gives more than we ask. Grace gives more than we ask. In verse 6, this woman goes and tells her husband what she'd been promised. And she's like, I didn't even ask where this person's from. I didn't even know what their name was. And I find that so interesting. Because what that shows us is that this woman's like, I don't even know who this person is, and I don't even know what they're really talking about or what's going on. Well, if she had been praying about her situation, if she had been crying out and asking to, for God for deliverance, then when this being showed up and said, hey, we're going to deliver you, she would have exactly known who this was. Maybe she would have known it was the Lord, but at least she would have known, like, this person is someone that I've been praying for. But she has no idea who this person is. Because they're talking about something that she didn't even know was possible. She wasn't praying, and actually no one in this passage is praying. Like, no one here is turning to God and, and asking for his deliverance. They're trapped in their slavery, and they are not even looking to the Lord. Because here we see that they've actually begun to get used to their oppression. Verse 1 says that it had been 40 years that the Israelites had been enslaved to the Philistines. It's the longest period 
of enslavement that we see in this entire book. A 2006 study from scientists at Central Michigan University and the University of California revealed that around this time of history, the average lifespan was 30 years. And so for most people, they've been slaves for as long as they've been alive. They didn't know any different. And so they just accepted their situation. They just accepted being slaves. They just accepted that being oppressed, well, that was just their lot in life. But God comes. And even though they weren't asking, he promises to give them a savior, even though they weren't asking for one. Friends, this is grace. Grace does not wait for us to ask. Grace knows how to give better than we even know how to ask. And notice who the savior is going to come through. Verse 2 tells us that this woman who's being told she's going to give birth to a savior, what's kind of unique about her? It says that this woman who's going to give birth to God's savior, she was a woman who until that point had been unable to conceive a child. There are few things in life more sad and painful than someone who wants to have children but can't because of physical limitations. Also in that culture, not only would it have been heartbreaking to not be able to have a child, it also would have sadly been seen as a shameful thing. Barren women were looked down upon because they weren't contributing the future of the family. And that is so cruel. And that is so unkind. But that's how things were viewed in that culture. And so while this whole nation was living in a state of terrible distress in their enslavement, this woman is going through her own personal level of distress. And she also isn't asking God to give her a miracle. She isn't asking to be given a child. She doesn't know that that's even possible. But God gives her one anyway. God gives her one anyway. So here's what we're seeing here, friends. Here's what the, the author of this story wants us to, to pick up. What we're seeing here is that God sending a Savior to a people who didn't even know they could have one through a woman who didn't even know she could have kids. While these people had accepted their sad circumstances, God had not. God was unwilling to let their oppression endure, and so he intervened without even being asked Friends, that is grace. And this is the first time in Scripture that God promised to a woman that she would give birth to a Savior. God had raised up and provided other Saviors. This is the first time that God showed up and said to a woman that this child is going to be a Savior, and I'm telling you right from his birth. It was the first time, but it was not going to be the last time. Because many years later, there would be another woman whose name is Mary. And God would tell her that I'm going to give you a child. And Jesus would be born to be the Savior to end all saviors. The Savior that we weren't even asking for. Jesus came not because we were crying out for a deliverer. Jesus came to a people who didn't even know they needed to be delivered. For as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You know what dead people can't do? Dead people can't do anything. They're dead. They can't do anything. So Jesus came not because we were looking for him. He came not because we were asking for him. He came when our hearts were sin-deadened towards God 
and he gave us a salvation that we didn't even know we needed. If it had been left up to just me and you, then like these Israelites, we would have stayed just enslaved in our sin. But God saw what we were accepting, and by grace, God said, that's unacceptable. And so in grace, Jesus came and he lived the life of perfection that we failed to live. He died the death that we deserve on the cross. He rose in life to prove that he truly is God. He ascended on high where he now ever lives to plead and intercede for us. And so friends, our hope for grace is that God has given us a grace that we didn't even know we needed and yet it is still ours. He gave us grace on that day when Jesus died for us on Calvary. He gave us grace on that day when he rose again from the grave to prove that he is the sinner. He is giving us grace today as his mercies are new to us. If we placed our faith in Christ we woke up to new mercies today by the grace of God and he will give us grace tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that until we get to heaven. He has given us grace. He is giving us grace he will give us grace all the way till we get to home. Friends, this is the goodness of God. It's a grace so great that it doesn't wait just for what we think we need. It's a grace that comes and meets us even beyond what we know that we need. And so when we get to heaven, the story's not going to be, I made it, look at me. The story's not going to be, I crucified my flesh, look at what I was able to do. The story's not going to be, oh, all these hardships came, but man, I knew how to make lemonade out of lemons, and I did it, I made it, I, ra- I got here. No, no one is boasting in heaven. The song is not about us. We're told what the song is in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. We're told that the song is, by your blood. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on earth. And so the song is, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, the praise all goes to God because the only way any of us are saved from our sins, will be preserved from our sins, and will make it to the end. Anyway, any of that's happened is because of him. And so all the praise goes to him. Friends, grace is amazing because it gives more than we even know how to ask. Point number three. Grace really is amazing because grace creates more than we can do. In verse chapter 7, God tells the woman that her son needs to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, this is not referring to someone being born from the land of Nazareth. Don't get confused in the New Testament. We'll talk about Jesus being a Nazarite. That just meant that he was born in the land of Nazareth. That's not what's being talked about here. In Numbers chapter 6, there's a specific vow that's given called the Nazarite vow. It was a vow that a person could take upon themselves to be focused and intentional in praying to God for his help in a very critical time of need. So it was a specific vow for a specific time for a specific purpose. This vow had really three stipulations that we read about in Numbers chapter 6. Don't cut your hair, don't drink alcohol, and don't touch dead bodies. Keeping one's hair uncut and refraining from drinking were ways of showing that you were training and focusing your heart on the Lord. There's a way for everyone around you to know that you're not just living like everyone else, but you're actually trained and focused on asking God for his specific help for a very specific thing. And by not touching dead bodies, they're adopting the stringent rules of ceremonial cleanliness for priests. Priests were not allowed to touch anything that was dead because they worked in God's house every single day. And death is never to come before the presence of God. So a Nazarite 
was someone who was living in the presence of God every day as they were asking for God's help in a very critical way for a very specific time. But this child was not to be a Nazarite for just one specific period of time. Usually people were Nazarites for maybe a year, maybe three years. It was a very hard way to live in that, in that time. So you'd only do it for a certain length of time. But this person is not going to be a Nazarite for just a period of time. He's supposed to be a Nazarite for his whole life. In order for that to be fulfilled, in order for this child to be a Nazarite for his whole life, that not only had implications on him, it actually had implications on his parents. Because notice what verse 7 says. It says, God says to the woman that this means that she cannot drink, that she cannot eat anything unclean. She has to follow the ritual rules for spiritual cleanliness because her son needs to be holy from his first day of life. Side note, but here's another one of the many places that God shows where he thinks life starts. Life starts in the womb. This woman is told she cannot eat because that would break the Nazarite vow and therefore would make her child who is alive within her breaking the Nazarite vow. This child was supposed to be a Nazarite from the womb to the day of his death, we are told, in verse 7. And so that implications on the mother who is carrying his life in her womb. Life is from womb to tomb and every life is precious to God. The woman is told that she needs to keep herself ritually clean and the husband he has a hard time believing this. I didn't really want to give this away as I was reading the text through the first time, but if I were to read it again, I, I probably would almost do it in a humorous tone when we get to verse 8, because I think it's actually meant to be read with a lot of irony. Right? This husband, his wife comes to him and says, hey, this being said that you know, like, we're supposed to do this, this thing, and, and I need to keep myself clean. Now, for the man, like, that would be challenging for him, because um, all of a sudden, the implications for how he was going to need to live and act as well. She needs to stay clean. He needs to be careful how he approaches her um, so that they can stay clean. So this has implications for him. And so he ain't just going on the word of his wife for that. He's like, man, if, if this is really true. If this is really true. It says, Manoah prayed to the Lord, verse 8, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to teach us uh, what we're to do with the child and, 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 and who, who will be born. His wife already told them what they were supposed to do with the child. But he's not taking her word for it. He needs a direct answer from God because living this way was just going to be too hard. And so God comes again and speaks directly to him. And, and Manoah asks him a question. Manoah's like, uh, verse 12. Now, when your words come true, um, so what is to be the child's man of life? And, uh, and what's his mission? You know, like, is this whole Nazarite thing, is this, is this really happening? Are we really sure it's what we want to do here? He just can't believe that this is what God was asking him to do because this way of life was very, very hard. But God says in verses 13, verse 13, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink strong wine or drink, or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. God made it clear that this is what needed to happen. And at that point in this passage, the questions stop. And these parents accept their responsibility. A responsibility that was only theirs because of the grace of God. Right? These commands that they need to follow, while hard, were not a burden. No, these commands that they need to follow were the means to which God was going to bring about their salvation. And so from that perspective, God's commands were not burdensome. No, they were a blessing. God giving them these commands was a sign that God's favor and grace 
was upon them. And for us, friends, as we have seen an even greater salvation that God has brought in Jesus, as we have seen an even greater depth to the grace of God, the grace of God hung and died for us on the cross, taking on hell on our behalf, as God has broken open his heart and showed his love, pouring out for us through the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Oh, friends, it is seeing the gracious salvation in Jesus that should convince us God's desire is never to keep anything good from us, but to lead us into what is best for us. God's commands are not a burden. They might be hard. They might go against what you naturally desire. But God's commands are never a burden. Being given the commands of God is a sign that His blessing is on your life. Being given God's word and told what God wants from us is not God being a killjoy, but Him leading us into the greater path of joy. He's leading us to the way of life. Young people, I want you to especially listen to me on this. This world wants to tell you all kinds of things about what is good. And those things that the world is telling you is good will often contradict what God says is good. Who do you know who to believe? Friends, I want to suggest the one you should believe is the one who loved you so much that he gave his life for you that he died on a cross. The one you should believe to know who has your best interests as hearts is the one who showed you that he is so committed to your best and your good that he died on a cross. The world just wants to screw with your life. Jesus died to save your life. Trust him and follow his ways. Friends, it is seeing the grace of God. It's seeing the goodness of salvation that he's given us in Jesus. It's seeing this grace that shows us God's heart of love for us. And it's seeing God's heart of love for us that should convince us and empower us to follow God's commands. Listen, God, God's commands are not a burden. They are a blessing. And obedience to God is never going to be fueled by you feeling guilty or shamed. No, obedience to God is not going to be fueled by you having your arm twisted. It's going to be fueled by you having your heart won. If you struggle to do what God says sometimes, in other words, if you're human like the rest of us, then what you need is the same thing that I need. And that is ask God to reveal to us even greater depths of the grace of Jesus Christ. See, God was present with these people and he was showing them his grace. And that's what transformed them to be able to do something that they naturally did not want to do at first. Friends, for us, we have the Holy Spirit present with us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who then shows us the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And it is seeing the grace of God as empowered by the Spirit of God that changes us more and more into the people of God that He wants us to be. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with an unveiled face, holding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Friends, I think we so often get stuck in our cycles because we try to change through sheer willpower alone. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be better. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to change this way. And I'm not trying to say there might not be steps you need to take. But if your hope for change is what you're going to do, then you're going to find yourself where you were in the first place. Because guess what? The reason you got there was because of you, so you ain't getting out because of you. 
you need grace to intervene and come into your life. And so we do not obey God through sheer willpower alone. No, we obey God through a deepening reliance on the Holy Spirit's power to shine forth faith in our hearts to behold the glory of Christ. And friends, the glory of Christ and His grace, it's so amazing that what the Scripture is telling us is that the more we see it, we cannot help but be changed by it. If change is coming hard in your life, what I'm suggesting to you is that you need more of the Spirit's help to see the glory of Christ. So that by seeing Him, you might be changed more and more by Him. We do not change by sheer willpower alone. We change by humbling ourselves and admitting that we can't, but He can. And so then we take steps of faith. Then we take steps of obedience, not in our own strength, but instead trusting in His and the grace He's given us in Christ. It is grace, friends, that creates more in us than we could possibly do by ourselves. Galatians 2.20, the life I live, I no longer live in the flesh, but in the Son of God who lived for me and gave Himself. Friends, we, we obey God through having our hearts won by the grace of God. This is what creates in us the ability to do more than we possibly could by ourselves. Grace is amazing because grace creates more than we can do by ourselves. Finally, grace really is amazing because grace costs more than we can give. Grace costs more than we can give. In verse 15, Manoah is so grateful to this person who he still thinks at that point in verse 15, this person is just some messenger from God. He's so grateful that he wants to prepare a meal for him. Right? He wants to pay him back for this good news that this messenger has given to him. But God says, don't give me no meal. No, make a burnt offering to the Lord, which in Jewish law meant worshiping God. They worship through burnt offerings. So what this, this person, who is the Lord, what this person saying is, don't try to pay me back, but give God some praise for what he's done. I mean, Noah and his wife, they do that. They get a fire, make the burnt offering. And then when they make a burnt offering, that's when they realize who it was that they've been talking to. It says in verse 20, when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. This being steps up into the flame and is not burned by it, but instead is transported by it up into the heavens. And so they fall on their faces. Because falling on your face was a sign of extreme reverence. They have to bow down and get as low as they possibly can go because they just realized who it was they had been speaking to. When they saw this being go up in the fire and not be consumed by it, maybe the story of when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and how that bush was on fire but was not burned up, maybe that story came to mind. Or maybe how God guided the Israelites through the wilderness by inhabiting a pillar of fire at night. Or, or maybe the words of Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, which says God is a consuming fire. I'm not sure what it was, but what became clear to them at this moment was this was no angel. This was the Lord Himself. And it's no wonder He said, you can't make a meal for me, but you can worship me. Because the grace they had been shown was too great for them to pay for. And so all they could do was receive it and worship God for it. Manoah doesn't get this at first, though. Because he, when he realizes that it's God they're speaking to, he falls on his face, 
And he says uh, in verse 22, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Maybe he's remembering the story of Moses who when Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, you cannot see me and live. And Manoah was probably thinking to himself, um, I ain't no Moses. And so if Moses couldn't see God and live, I'm a goner for sure. Yet his wife, his wife points out what is true. Praise God for godly wives, guys. If you don't got one, find one as quickly as possible. His wife praises, points him to God and to God's grace. She says in verse 23, The Lord had meant to kill us. He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. She assures us God, God's not going to kill us. But notice why she says that. She doesn't say that in a way that, let's be honest, we can often say things in our American minds. She doesn't say that, well, God's not going to kill us because he knows we're really good at heart. God's not going to kill us because he knows we have good intentions. God's not going to kill us because he knows that we do good things to help other people. Right? In our culture where still, I don't know, it's like something like 67% of people say they're Christians, and you ask them what does it mean to be a Christian, oh, do good to others. That's what it means to be a Christian. Right? And so we think we're okay with God because of the good that we do around ourselves. She doesn't point that way at all. She doesn't point to any goodness in them whatsoever. No, she doesn't point out their worthiness. She points out God's graciousness. She's like, God, accept our worship. And he showed us all these things. And he announced our salvation. She points to God. She says, look at him. Look at what he's at, how he's acting. Look at how he's treated us. And friends, that's where we need to be pointed as well when we feel like we aren't measuring up. Listen, the next time that you feel like you're not measuring up, this is what we need. We need to be pointed to the grace of God. The next time where you feel like you're just all under all this pressure to perform, the next time you are just feeling that burden of shame and guilt that you carry upon your heart, what you need is not to be told about how great you are. What you need is to be told about how gracious He is. If God was going to kill you for your sin, He would have done it a long time ago. But as God's Word said, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it through Christ. Friends, today is the day of salvation. There will be a day coming when everyone who opposes God will be wiped out by God. But that day ain't today. Today is a day where we have the opportunity to taste and see the goodness of God's grace. If he was going to kill us for our sin, he would have done a long time ago. But Jesus came and he was killed for us. And friends, let's be clear Jesus' sacrifice and that grace, it costs so much more than we could possibly ever give. Like, what good work do you think you can do to pay Jesus back for what He has done? He gave His life for you. He endured hell for you. None of us are earning anything to deserve that. His grace costs more than we can give. But the good news is, we aren't being asked to give anything in order to receive it. God does not ask us to pay Him for His grace. He asks us to worship Him for His grace. We are not paying God back to get something more from Him. No, we are praising God because of what we have already received from Him. And we praise God not through making burnt offerings like these people did. No, how do the people of God praise God now? We're told how we are to praise God in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
We're told to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our worship, friends, is our whole lives. As we pursue God's holy commands to show that we believe He is worthy of everything. That, that, that's worship. Worship is declaring God's great worth. Worship is using everything we have, all our heart, soul, minds, and strengths. It is using everything that God has given us to say with everything that is in us, He's worthy. Look at how great He is. Being obedient to God is not about doing the right thing. No, being obedient to God is so much deeper than that. Being obedient to God is about using our lives, the one life God has given us, using that life to declare the one who died for me is worthy of everything for me. We don't obey God because it's right. We obey Him because He's glorious. And we want to use our lives to shine forth and honor Him by saying, oh, there's all these other things, but I'm saying no to that. I'm saying yes to you because all these things pale in comparison to the greatness of who you are. Friends, all of life is meant to be worship fueled from a response to the grace that God's shown us in Christ which reveals the magnificence of His glory. And so when we come together here as a church, friends, we are worshiping. Why do we sing songs? Not because it's karaoke hour. No, we sing songs because He's worthy of our praise. Why do we sit and hear His word read and preached? Why? Because He's worthy of our praise. Why do we come together and prioritize this time on the Lord's Supper, on the Lord's Day, when there's so many other things we can do? Why don't we just live stream and stay at home? Why do we actually make the effort to come out in person? Because He's worthy of our presence in this place. We come together because He's worthy. And then guess what? He's not just worthy for an hour and a half on Sunday. He's worthy on Monday morning tomorrow. He's worthy on Tuesday night. He's worthy on Saturday. And so when you wake up tomorrow and you go to your job, work hard and work with integrity and treat people with kindness because He's worthy of your worship and that's how you worship. Your work is worship unto God. When you sit around your table with friends or family, what you talk about, what you meditate on, how you treat one another, friends, you have an opportunity to declare that he's worthy as you talk about the greatness and grace of who he is. On Saturday, when your neighbor does that thing that they do that gets on your last nerve that you didn't even know you had, and you just want to take it out on them, Friends, you don't return meanness with meanness, but meanness with kindness. Why? Because He is worthy. Friends, all of life is meant to be lived under the reality that there is no part of life that we are not to say, Jesus is Lord of this moment. And in this moment, by His grace, through the power of His Spirit, I want to say He's worthy. We live to follow God, not to pay God back, but in response to the greatness of who God has revealed Himself to be. And when we fail, when we sin, when we don't live in a way that reflects God's worth, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Romans chapter 6. Because God does not give grace based upon how faithfully we live our lives and worship to Him. He gives grace based upon the measurable cost that was paid by Jesus on the cross.
And that's not an excuse to sin. But it is a sure comfort when we do sin. So here's the reality, friends. You and I haven't lived a day yet perfectly. That's not, again, it's not an excuse to just give up and not try. No, honor God. Everything I just said about living with God's worship, that's all still true. Keep that in your mind. Here's also the reality. You never lived a day that's perfect, neither have I. And you know what that means? Each day is a day we're actually experiencing more of God's grace to us. Each day that we exist as a Christian is a day we experience more of God's grace. We don't pay God anything back. The day doesn't end and God's like, oh man, my grace to you was this, but you did all these good things. Now I owe you a little bit less. No, no we actually experience more of God's grace. And so the longer we're Christians, the more our debt to grace grows. And the good news is God never calls us on that debt. He just asks us to worship him for the greatness of what he's shown us in Christ. Friends, the whole idea of us being most grateful for Jesus when we get, first get saved, man, that just shows we ain't doing it right. We should be so much more grateful for Jesus 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years after being saved because we have so much more experience of his grace than the day we first believed. And the more we see what God's grace to us costs, the more our heart should be warmed and worshiped to him and the more then our obedience should be fueled by him. And so it becomes this beautiful cycle where depth to grace grows, worship of God exists, and our lives become increasingly pleasing to the Lord as we live in such a way to say he is worthy. Friends, grace is it's amazing. It's amazing. It redeems more than we deserve. It gives more than we ask, and it creates more than we can do as it costs more than we can give. So as we come to a close, I just want to ask you to consider where in your life do you need to be reminded of the grace of God? Grace is a concept we can have, but I think sometimes it can be a hard thing to actually apply. Where in your life do you need to be reminded of the grace of God? Maybe there's a hidden sin that you've never confessed to anyone. Maybe there's a persistent struggle with sin that you don't think will ever change. Maybe there's a stress or worry that just is constantly gripping your heart. Maybe there's a temptation that you keep going back to because it just feels too good to give up. Maybe there's a step of obedience that feels just too hard to take. How would trusting in God's amazing grace change how you view whatever that thing is that you're going through? You trust in grace, then you can confess your sin. Because God has grace for that. You trust in grace, you should believe you are empowered to change and repent from your sin. Because there's grace for that. You trust in grace, then you should believe you don't have to stay gripped in anxiety. Because the God of grace is going to see you through. There's, there's, there's grace for that. You trust in grace, then you should know that whatever temptation is saying is so good, it is not as good as he is. There's grace for that. If something just seems too hard to do, you need to know that it probably is too hard for you to do. But there's grace for that. And God will help you. Friends, grace changes everything. And so my question is, what does grace need to change for you? What does grace need to change for you? My encouragement would be to talk to a Christian friend about that. 
bringing things out into the open has a way of sealing them more in our hearts. And I believe that we can all use a little bit more grace sealed into our hearts. And so consider, where do you need to be reminded about grace? And who can you talk to about that? And if no one comes to your mind, then feel free to talk to any one of the pastors here, myself, Pastor Matt, Pastor Caleb. We'd love to talk to you and help you get connected more to the community of this church that four months from now, when you think, oh, who can I talk to about that? You have a lot of people in your life who you can talk to about that. Let's just bow our heads now in a word of prayer and thank God for his grace and ask for faith to believe in his grace in that area of life where we need it most. Let's pray.